Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Outrage of Outsiders, Why So Many People Dislike Christians. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 20th, 2008. In his book, The Heart of Christianity, published in 2003, Professor Marcus Borg of Oregon State University describes how his university students have a uniformly negative image of Christianity. When I ask them to write a short essay on their impression of Christianity, says Borg, they consistently use five adjectives. Christians are literalistic, anti-intellectual, self-righteous, judgmental, and bigoted. Christians might object, rather defensively, that it's unfair to draw sweeping conclusions based upon the report of just one person. If you think that way, you'd be right in your logic, but you'd be wrong in your conclusion. A new book called Unchristian, published in 2007 by David Kinneman of the Barna Group, presents objective research that supports Borg's subjective anecdote. David Kinneman's three-year study documents how an overwhelming percentage of 16 to 29-year-olds view Christians with hostility, resentment, and disdain. These broadly and deeply negative views of Christians aren't just superficial stereotypes with no basis in reality, says Kinneman. Nor are the critics people who've had no contact with churches or Christians. It would be a tragic mistake, he argues, for believers to protest that outsider outrage at Christians is a misperception. Rather, it's based upon their real experiences with today's Christians. According to Kinneman's Barma study, here are the percentages of people outside the church who think that the following words describe present-day Christianity. You'll notice that they're in order of prevalence. Number one, anti-homosexual, 91%. Judgmental, 87%. Hypocritical, 85%. Old-fashioned, 78%. Too political, 75%. Out of touch with reality, 72%. Insensitive to others, 70%. Boring, 68%. It would be hard to overestimate, says Kinneman, how firmly people reject and feel rejected by Christians. Or think about it this way, he suggests. When you introduce yourself as a Christian to a friend, a neighbor, or business associate who's an outsider, you might as well have it tattooed on your arm, anti-homosexual, gay-hater, homophobic. You probably don't think of your own self in these terms, but as Kinneman suggests, that's what outsiders think of you. Gabe Lyons of the Fermi Project, who commissioned the Barna research, remembers his first look at the data. 
I'll never forget sitting in Starbucks, he writes, pouring through the research results on my laptop. As I soaked it in, I glanced at the people around me and was overwhelmed with the thought, this is what they think of me. It was a sobering thought to know that if I had stood up and announced myself as a Christian to the customers in Starbucks that day, they would have associated me with every one of the negative perceptions described in this book. So, Borg was right. Maybe even more than he knew. But things weren't always this way. In John's Gospel this week, Jesus speaks for the first time. When Andrew and a friend asked Jesus where he was staying, Jesus said, Come and see. And so they did, spending the whole day with Jesus. They were so taken by that one day with Jesus that we read, quote, The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Peter and say, Come and see. The very next day, John writes, Philip grabbed Nathaniel and said the same thing, come and see. John chapter 1, 29 to 42. Thus were the unlikely beginnings of an improbable movement. The Gospels record how throngs of people were so captivated by the preaching, teaching, and healing of Jesus that they did, in fact, come and see for their own selves. Based upon what they experienced with Jesus, their lives were radically reoriented. After his death and resurrection, the community that emerged of those who had been with Jesus gained a reputation for the exact opposite of the one documented by Kinnaman. The first believers, according to Luke, quote, enjoyed the favor of all the people. Acts chapter 2, verse 47. Luke writes in Acts chapter 4, verse 33, Great grace was with them all. Or consider the simple greeting of Paul's letter to the Corinthians in this week's epistle, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 to 9. To this very troubled group of believers, sectarian divisions, boasting about incest, lawsuits, eating food that had been sacrificed to pagan idols, disarray in worship services, and predatory pseudo-preachers who masqueraded as super-apostles, to these deeply troubled people, Paul wholeheartedly wished them grace and peace. He said that he hoped they would be enriched in every way. He wished them only good. Consider what our world might be like if we each offered our neighbor a similar wish for their well-being. Following the example of Jesus, the first Christians broke down social barriers. They disregarded religious taboos that judged people as ritually clean or unclean, worthy or unworthy, respectable or disrespectable. They subverted normal social hierarchies of wealth, 
ethnicity, religion, and gender in favor of a radical egalitarianism before God and with each other. Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In a word, the first believers were generous. They demonstrated authentic transparency, not moral superiority or ulterior motives. Like their Lord, they exuded compassion rather than condemnation. They lived out of gratitude, not out of fear, and had a reputation for empathy rather than fault-finding. The first followers of Jesus were people of self-sacrifice, not self-interest. They insisted that God was like a tender father, not a vindictive tyrant. And they encouraged every person without exception to believe what the psalmist said, who wrote in Psalm 56, verse 9, This I know, that God is for me. A generation after those first believers, the theologian Justin Martyr summarized the appeal of the Christian community. Quote, Those who once delighted in fornication now embrace chastity. We who once took the most pleasure in accumulating wealth and property now share with everyone in need. We who hated and killed one another and would not associate with men of different tribes because of their different customs now, since the coming of Christ, live familiarly with them and pray for our enemies. And so, too, the theologian Tertullian, who wrote, Our care for the derelict and our active love have become our distinctive sign before the enemy. See, they say, how they love one another and how ready they are to die for each other. I wish that we could somehow recapture the witness of those first believers who, because great grace was with them all, as Luke put it, demonstrated overflowing generosity to their neighbors and who consequently, as Luke wrote, enjoyed the favor of all the people. I wish those traits could be what Tertullian called our distinctive mark instead of what most people think today when they hear the word Christian. And now for further reflection. Consider 1 John chapter 4, 20 to 21. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Or reflect upon the saying of St. Maximus the Confessor who lived in the 7th century. 
Blessed is the person who can love all people equally, always thinking good of everyone. Or finally, try to update Galatians 3.28 with contemporary categories that divide people. Paul wrote, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. What might that verse look like today? There is neither Republican or Democrat, rich nor poor. Try to update Galatians 3.28 with contemporary categories. For books this week, we have a guest book review by David Werther. David Werther is actually our music review editor. And in a previous music review, he reviewed Eric Clapton, The Complete Collection, which comes with an autobiography called simply Clapton, The Autobiography. A guest review by David Werther. Clapton's autobiography in two CD career retrospective are presented as a matched set with identical cover designs. Clapton, the autobiographer, is surprisingly detached. A ghostwriter would have glamorized and romanticized Clapton's life. He doesn't do this. Malcolm Muggeridge, for example, entitled his autobiography Chronicles of Wasted Time. That caption would work well for Eric Clapton's life. He is a great talent greatly squandered in the haze of heroin, alcohol, and unhealthy relationships. Clapton himself is absolutely candid about this. On page 243, we read, I found a pattern in my behavior that had been repeating itself for years, decades even. Bad choices were my specialty, and if something honest and decent came along, I would shun it and run the other way. It could be argued that my choices reflected the way I saw myself, that I thought I wasn't worthy of anything decent, so I could only choose partners who would ultimately abandon me as I was convinced my mother had done all those years ago. Clapton's father was an unfaithful Canadian soldier with a wife back at home. His grandparents raised him, and he knew them as mom and dad. It was not until he overheard an aunt ask, have you heard from his mom, that Clapton realized he was an illegitimate child. In fact, he never met his father. His beautiful song, My Father's Eyes, is about his belief that in the eyes of his own illegitimate son, Connor, he saw the eyes of the man who abandoned him. He writes, In Antigua, I wrote a song linking the loss of Connor with the mystery surrounding the life of my own father, called My Father's Eyes. In it, I tried to describe the parallel between looking into the eyes of my son and seeing the eyes of the father that I never met, 
through the chain of our blood. Clapton's own son, Connor, who was born in 1986 and died in 1991, was once playing hide-and-seek with his nanny. While a janitor was warning Connor's mother about windows being open for cleaning, Connor fell 49 stories to his death. As one would expect, Connor's death marked Clapton. Connor's birth did as well. While in a treatment center, Clapton determined that he would, quote, break the chain, end quote. But I kept coming back to the thought of Connor, writes Clapton, the reality of his life and what it required of me, and the horrible possibility that if I didn't get it right this time, history would repeat itself. I had to break the chain and give Connor what I never really had, a father. This chain, as Clapton describes it, broke when he fell down and prayed. It shocked me to realize, writes Clapton, that here I was in a treatment center, a supposedly safe environment, and I was in serious danger. I was absolutely terrified in complete despair. At that moment, almost of their own accord, my legs gave way and I fell to my knees. In the privacy of my room, I begged for help. I had no notion of who I was talking to. I just knew that I had come to the end of my tether. I had nothing left to fight with. So I asked for help and getting down on my knees, I surrendered. Within a few days, I realized that something had happened for me. An atheist would probably say it was just a change of attitude, and to a certain extent, that's true. But there was much more to it than that. I had found a place to turn to, a place I'd always known was there, but never really wanted or needed to believe in. From that day until this, I have never failed to pray in the morning on my knees, asking for help, and at night, to express gratitude for my life and, most of all, for my sobriety. At the end of his autobiography, Clapton talks about Muddy Waters calling him an adopted son and asking him to carry on the blues tradition. Humbled, Clapton accepts. The blues has always been Clapton's calling, and at times he pursued that calling with abandon and left a staggering legacy. Consider that from 1963 until 1971, Clapton was a member of the Yardbirds, John Mayhall's Blues Breakers, Cream, Blind Faith, and Derek and the Dominoes and recorded his blistering version of Robert Johnson's Crossroads, Badge, In the Presence of, of the Lord, and with Dwayne Allman, the adrenaline-rushing, heartbreaking song, Layla. Layla remains the high-water mark in rock. In his last tour, Clapton played the song with Derek Trucks, a second-generation member of the Allman Brothers Band. The comparatively weak moments on Clapton, the complete collection, come when Clapton strays from the blues. 
No matter its chart-topping popularity, Clapton renditions of Bob Marley's I Shot the Sheriff is hard to take, just two cuts after Layla. The good news is that blues dominate the complete collection of Clapton, and that late in his life, Clapton is finding fulfillment as a husband and as a father of four children. Eric Clapton, the autobiography, along with the complete collection of his music, a guest review by David Werther. For film this week, I review a remarkable movie called Searching for Wrong-Eyed Jesus, 2003. When director Andrew Douglas received a Christmas gift from the country singer Jim White called The Mysterious Tale of How I Shouted Wrong-Eyed Jesus, he called White to learn where such weird and haunting music originated. The result is this documentary film, narrated by White, who talks his way through the loneliest and most isolated parts of Florida, Virginia, Louisiana, and Kentucky in a 1970s Chevy. This is the south of abandoned school buses, washboard sandy roads, houses on stilts and swamps, and cars held together with so-called Alabama chrome, i.e. duct tape. There's no condescension by director Douglas, just fascination and appreciation for the stories, the music, the people, their poetry, and especially their sensual religion. Nor is White some hayseed. He quotes Jonathan Swift and Flannery O'Connor, and has lived in Amsterdam, California, and New York City, only returned to the Deep South in order to understand its ways. In these quirky and desperately poor people, Douglas and White find the struggle between good and evil that is every person's story. Says White, I was thinking about these desperate people and their desperate hellfire religion. So they invented a God who's going to whoop ass, basically. And for White, he himself admits that he too is looking for the gold tooth in God's crooked smile. Searching for Wrong-Eyed Jesus from the year 2003. And finally, for poetry, we posted a favorite poem of mine by Edwina Gately. The poem is called, Let Your God Love You. Be silent. Be still. Alone. Empty before your God. Say nothing. Ask nothing, be silent, be still. Let your God look upon you, that is all. God knows, 
God understands. God loves you with an enormous love and only wants to look upon you with that love. Quiet, still, be. Let your God love you. Edwina Gately, let your God love you. And thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.